Everything's Interesting, the podcast where, if it's not interesting, it's our fault. My name's Justin Everything, and I'm here with Keith Interesting. Keith, how are you? I'm good. Very interesting tonight. Good, I hope so, because we're recording this. Oh, shit. I had a question. I had a quick question I want to ask you. Okay. So you're sitting there. You're in uh, your street clothes. Yep. Just what you would wear out. Playing ball. Right. Yeah. Whatever you do when you leave your house. Play ball. none of my business. Right. Uh, But we're in my house, and I'm sitting here in full pajamas, PJs, Jimmy Jams, whatever you want to call them. That's right. Does that make you uncomfortable in any way? No. Okay. All right. I just wanted... I didn't know if, like, you were jealous because I'm obviously so comfortable in my PJs. You're so uncomfortable in your own skin, though, (laughs) that I would never be jealous of you. (laughs) That's probably a good point. Well, today on the show, we'll be talking about True Detective and Wes Anderson's new movie, The Grand Budapest Hotel. After that, we're going to check in to see what's trending on Twitter, and we'll close with a recommendation from myself to Keith. But first, when we come back, we'll discuss True Detective. Detective has been off the air for two weeks now, two or three weeks, um, which has given us ample time to process the ending. And then forget the ending. Forget, maybe. Um, Although I don't think, considering how the show ended, we didn't need any time to process it, which is not something that I... You were looking forward to, you wanted a little more process. Yeah, it's not something I would have expected halfway through the season. I think we've got two positions on the ending. I've I felt I came away from the show liking it in general, but feeling somewhat disappointed because of the mystery aspect of it or the the Tuttle family aspect of it I felt wasn't fleshed out enough, despite all the warnings from Pizzolatto and that's not what the show the show's about Marty and Rust. Uh and I heeded the warnings. And came right. out feeling appropriately. Right. Right. And came out feeling completely satisfied. It took me two viewings of the finale, I think, to get to where I am. But I think I have grown to realize that I am fully satisfied by all eight episodes yeah. of True Detective. Yeah, and I think my biggest problem comes from that those connections not being made strongly enough. So the, the connections with the Tuttles and the Childress, who is who, whose involvement is, you know, prominent, who is just sort of... But, but don't you feel like you know those connections? You may not know the characters intimately, and I, you may not know the fates of the characters, I, but... Right. I know the connections exist. Right. I don't know what they are, and I don't have any way to really speculate what they are. I know that Tuttle the Preacher is involved. I, I have no idea what his level of involvement is. I don't know if he's one of the five men. 
I don't know what it's, his isn't, relationship with Errol is. Isn't the fact that he was in a video that but disgusted in, do everyone you, do you who know saw he's it in that video? That made a man scream from a from a houseboat <laughs> <laughs> that could be heard a mile away. Yeah. Isn't it enough? I mean, the the fact that he had any involvement, whether it's in a cover up of activities like that, but he was knowingly aware of it, I think is enough to you know feel like whether he was there in the room or just knew about it, he's as guilty as if he was. Yeah, and and therefore his involvement is kind of what more what more do you need? Yeah, I'm not taking the the guilt away. He's certainly guilty. I just would have liked a clearer picture of you want the... to see the video <laughs> <laughs> of the cult, um, and that's I've I've watched I've watched every episode at least twice, mm-hmm. you know. But I did so going week from week. So I would watch one week and I'd watch that week's episode again. So I haven't actually gone back after the ending and rewatched the whole thing. So I don't know uh I don't know if that aspect of it will sort of take away a lot of my enjoyment from the show because for me that was a lot of the enjoyment, sort of trying to put these pieces together, seeing the connections. You know, even though halfway through you start to get the warnings from the writer who's saying, "Look, that stuff is all you window know, dressing. Yeah, it's it's not important. What's important is Marty and Cole's relationship. Right. And that relationship is great. It's one of the best that's been written or whatever. Um, and that's ultimately, you know, what drives the show and what would save the show if it needs to be saved, which for me it's kind of does. When when did it start to turn for you, I guess? Was there an episode when you felt that flame, that fire that kept drawing you to Reddit to read yeah. new theories? When what episode did that start to wane? I don't I don't know the it it started to wane when Pizzolatto came out and said, look, this is not the focus of the show. Uh, and then you start sort of looking at everything in a different light, or I did at least. Um, and at the, and I, and that's, I think that's where my disappointment comes in. I wasn't expecting everything to be spelled out for me for the ending. I was happy with the level of explanation you get for the, all the cult, all the cult references, the Yellow King and whatnot. I was just a little disappointed that, you know, when you have, I think his name's Francis in the jail cell talking about big men are involved. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a very prominent um, proclamation to make, and it's something that I feel like has to be accounted for. And I appreciate, I appreciate the sort of simplicity and how much a single giving that line of. The Tuttles deny all involvement. Right, in the newscast. Making it a throwaway line. I, right. I appreciate that significance. But I, I feel like you can have that line and ha- that line carry that same weight while also still making the viewer feel like they at least could put the pieces together themselves outside of the show. The the thing, the the two biggest references I have for this are the New York trilogy, Paul Auster's The New York Trilogy, mm-hmm. and David Fincher's Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And both of those stories um, end without, I guess Zodiac does somewhat, mm-hmm. but they they end without 
spelling everything out for you. You don't know who the killer is in Zodiac. You have a, a very good idea. You know, you're convinced that you know who it is, but you don't know who it is. And with the New York trilogy, you know, it's a series of, there's three novels and all of them end in mysterious ways. They're more or less, you know, an alternative take on detective stories. And so nothing is solved to them, but I have read the New York trilogy five or six times through, and every single time I go back to it knowing I'm not going to find the answer, but still convincing myself I can find the answer. <laughs> right. Right. And I don't, like I said, I haven't gone back and watched True Detective, but I don't feel like I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to start rewatching the season and start seeing these clues and just thinking ultimately they don't mean anything because. They don't. They're like you said. They're they're more or less window dressing, which you know I can't fault the show for that because I guess they weren't trying for it. But it just was disappointing. Well, I guess you know what it most reminded me of was No Country for Old Men, and I think in the way that that film sets itself up as one thing, <clears throat> and then slowly reveals itself to be about something completely different it's it's a meditation on evil and i think both of them end in the same way and i think the differences in true detective and no country for me perfectly encapsulate that show's faults as well as it's kind of uh what what made me enjoy it so much and the faults of it, and I think this is what you're kind of speaking to as well, is Nick Pizzolatto's abilities as a writer. And I don't think enough people are probably giving Kerry Fukunaga enough credit for maybe his influence. I don't know that he had a lot of story influence, but he definitely had a big influence in how that story was conveyed visually. Yeah. That I think helped elevate that show. Absolutely. But I think Nick Pizzolatto is no Paul Oster, and he's no Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. You know, and in, in, in those ways, I think that's where the cracks in his story begin to show themselves. But I don't fault him for not being a Cormac McCarthy or a Paul Oster uh, in the sense that I'm no Nick Pizzolatto. You know, so yeah. so I think for me, having my expectations that I think I bring to anything, I bring to any book I read, any show I watch, any movie I watch that I look forward to, I bring my expectations. And all of them are going to change and alter those expectations. I think what we ideally want are those expectations elevated. We want the art to overcome our expectations and take us to a higher level that we maybe didn't conceive of this one i don't think took us higher so much as it took us like left you know yeah. or it took us right it, it didn't elevate it just took us to a different place and so i think in adjusting to that place i found that everything that nick pizzolato said to defend his work i feel like holds up when you watch the show you know, the things I do have issues with, like Audrey, and why have the stuff with her be so blatant? Yeah, so prominent. So prominent when 
you're literally not going to investigate anything. Like she is showing evidences of being molested at that young age with those pictures that she was drawing, with the five horsemen that she was echoing with her dolls, to then drop that and make it seem like, oh, she was that was just, you know, a girl growing up and exploring or whatever. I think is absurd. But I think that you can go back to the writing, you know, and just say, well, you know, so he's not a perfect writer, but his story holds together in in the broad strokes. I I take it when you say the story holds up, I think I take that differently than you and that I feel like the story is I guess the story is about these two guys and and mainly about Cole. I mean, it is about her, too. But, yeah, it's about Cole transitioning from nihilism to optimism in some small way and following his shift there. And and I want to get to the ending quickly, but. I just want to say, I th- for me, the story is also the the mystery to it. And what had me so excited, what had me so excited watching the show in the beginning, was you had these two characters whose interactions were so well written, and you had Cole, whose perspective was so unique given the format that he's mm-hmm. being presented in, mm-hmm. and you are coupling that to a certain point in the series with this, what seems to be a really intriguing mystery uh, and exploration of this mystery and sort of the ramifications of power and stuff like that. Right. And I felt like at the end, that sort of subplot is dropped. And that's what was disappointing to me. It went from, you know, having this one element that I, I it, it went from having these two elements that worked really well to just having one that worked really well and sort of forgetting about the other one and just saying, well, that's never what the show was about, which, you know, is fine. I just have to watch it differently when I watch it again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe I was able to do those adjustments, yeah. you know, before uh, having to see the whole thing again. So I guess one thing that interests me it's a question that I I am thinking about now is is this a show that you will revisit from start to finish yeah I, I want to um, you know when I was watching the show it was a no-brain it was like I can't wait for this to end and come out on blue way or whatever so I can buy it and watch it from beginning to end and dissect everything and 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 that's and and say this was the clue this was the clue this from episode one meant this when it shows back up in episode seven but like i said all that stuff is more or less lost and especially when you talk about the audrey stuff which i feel like could still be somewhat explained by just saying you know, or at least I explain it to myself as saying maybe Marty was oversharing with his family and unaware of it. That doesn't really jive with the idea of him being not home ever. Right? Yeah, yeah. He's but, only home to talk about work, but and then he's out, leaving again. Right. <laughs> outside of yeah, outside of her just being molested by whoever, someone in the cult. There's no explanation for. Yeah. It. There's no explanation for her setting up the five guys right there's no explanation for the drawings there's no explanation for the swirl drawing in the in the kitchen or wherever it's at. right and really quick just to interrupt i guess one thing that's curious too is looking back on those 
that that's where I do wonder, like, do you think Nick Pizzolato and uh, Carrie Fukunaga, do you think they were as, you know, Cole is just establishing all these, you know, 10 men, five horsemen, Audrey's doing it. Do you think they didn't think, do you think they were being subtle when they were doing that? Or do you think they were like, let's overtly lay out this mood in this theme, but have know that we're not going to ground it in anything? Yeah, it's an interesting question, especially when you think about how the the show was shot and filmed and written all more or less in a vacuum. They did it all at once. They shot it all at once. It was written all at once. So as someone who tries to write, I could see it very easily falling into, I want to kind of hint at these points, um, but I don't want to explore them fully. And then sort of when you're making revisions or when you sort of get into maybe into the process of filming thinking, oh, this is this would just be a neat little Easter egg for people to see. And then I think what happened is people start seeing that when the show's airing and, and people on Reddit are going just bonkers Crazy. with the stuff they see. And then all of a sudden, Nick Pizzolatto is probably like, oh, no, no like right. how do I need to cut the head off of this snake? Because right. people are going to be like really disappointed. Right. And just to come back a little bit, I like I said, I'm I'm not I didn't it doesn't it doesn't ruin the show for me. I still, you know, if I find the time, would like to go back and rewatch the whole thing. If nothing else, because I feel like Marty and Cole's interactions and relationship and their individual arcs, even Marty's, right, is really worth. good. Right. It's really, you know, worth going back and revisiting. Um but just to move on just to to sort of cap the discussion we'll just finish by talking about the ending like mm-hmm. does the ending work for you mm-hmm. does cole's switch work for you which you talked about a little bit but mm-hmm. um how did that play out for you did you feel right. like it was earned earned right. did you appreciate it yes i i think again going back to the no country uh analogy you know, there's so much to me that's similar in the, you know, shooting of Llewellyn Moss off screen, the big climactic scene, you know, that they're leading to in that film is then excised completely and we get the end result. And then we're off following Tommy Lee Jones's character as he talks about a dream that then just speaks to the theme of the story of the whole film and summarizes it. And to me, the the union of that ending, starting with the excised, you know, assassination of Llewellyn till the end is like a perfect stretch of storytelling. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. From the time that you get the end of Carcosa and the rescuing of heart and coal you have a similar stretch of excising some of the major other action with you know heart being like we didn't get everybody uh or a coal saying that and heart being like well it's not that kind of world right 
to the very finale that ends on a similar note of a thematic kind of recapping of the entire show. I would say it worked, again, for what Pizzolatto was trying to do. It didn't work in the sense of, I would rather watch the end stretch of No Country. I'd probably rather watch No Country uh, to get some of the similar ideas. But it did work as a show. And I guess I guess it's not fair to compare it. I, you know, it's not fair to compare it to that film because it is what it is. It's a show. It's different. Right. So I guess, yeah, comparing it just as a show, I will say it, it worked in largely the same way where it caused me to reflect on that kind of shift in coal towards positivity that I found kind of moving. And it wasn't like I was even moved in the moment. It was in the days after kind of reflecting. Really? Yes. Yeah. 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 I And I probably, not probably, I think I feel completely the opposite. Like, I didn't hate it. It's a little ham-handed with the with right. the stars. With the stars, you know, the stars are always in prominent feature. Right, and in the final line, I think it it could come off and did maybe come off a little cheesy and on the nose. But for me, the mood of the piece stuck with me after, and I think became more resonant than that specific line. Yeah, and and maybe. Throughout going back and rewatching the show over again, I'll pick up on hints of Cole leaning towards a more optimistic or positive worldview. You know, maybe with his interactions with Maggie. Um, I think it mainly happens in the hospital. That's bed. and that's what I'm saying. That's but that's what bothers me. And I'm and you don't of, get to see it. I'm hoping it's there. <laughs> It's not in the earlier part of the season because I feel like because that makes it feel tacked on. And it's it's such a Cole. What I like I said about Cole earlier, he has such a unique perspective for his medium, you know, of a television show. For him to end the show with such a like you said, ham handed sort of generic hallmark card sentiment. It was just like kind of bizarre. Um, like I said, it doesn't ruin the show for me, and it doesn't ruin Cole for me or his character, or his, what he's gone through. But I just it feels unearned from a guy who an episode before, or even maybe even in the same episode, but at least an episode before, who was like openly hostile towards well hinting that he's ready to die or right. ready to commit suicide or just done with life on some level to then being forcefully taken away from his daughter and the this void that he's experiencing and now all of a sudden everything is and you know everything's not great it's not fair to sort of reduce yeah. it like that but to to have such a Flip. I mean, it's basically a hundred and eighty degree flip. Well, I, I think I think you discount his experience, and I think you know we don't get to see his recovery. We yeah. do get that Jesus shot of him in the bed, and I think that's 
him going through his transition. He definitely doesn't seem happy. It's no. it's not like he came out of that coma and was just like, oh, I got a new outlook. Yeah. He's upset at heart seeing him there. Yeah. They flick each other off. He's sitting in his bed. He's miserable. And only upon reflection of his experience does he come to that new understanding. So it's not like he did just pop up out of bed and be like, heart, I see light, you know, like everything's good. It's it's a subtle change and it's a subtle shift. And, you know, with him saying, like, I think the light is winning, you could quibble with that line. <laughs> Just hearing you say it, it's goofy. You could it's, a, it's a cheesy line. And, uh, but I think, again, speaking to the theme of the story, I think it all holds together. We can debate about the level of, and the execution of the writing, but I don't think that that prevented me from connecting thematically with it. And then one final question for you. How would you feel if they had a Cthulhu ending? What if they got to the end of Carcosa and a squid monster came up out of the ground? What would Is that an ending that you would have preferred? Uh, yeah, no, no. I think that's a terror. I think that is an absolutely horrible idea. And that would have ruined the entire series for me personally. I just think... I, I, you know, a lot of people were with all the signs and symbols and um, the weird fiction stuff he was throwing there. A lot of people seemed to lean towards that, but I never got that feeling from the show. I never got the feeling that it was leaning so heavily on that that some supernatural monster could show up. I think you get a glimpse or maybe a nod to that when. Um, Cole is hallucinating and he's seeing that nub nebula Did you like that? I liked it a lot. Yeah, so did I. I was sort of surprised at the amount of people who were unclear as to what it was. Right, right. Like, you know, at the very beginning or towards the beginning of the episode, um, Hart is asking him if he still hallucinates. So right. they're very obviously reintroducing this into the show for a reason and then he starts hallucinating. Right. You know, I, I like that a lot. Right. Um, what did you think of the quadruple headbutt? Yeah, I thought, and that was See? another thing. It just is like, it for a show that especially espoused to be so different from the run-of-the-mill cop procedural on network TV, it ended like a lot, like a very generic procedural on network TV with the two heroes being, surviving what should be mortal wounds. I mean... Forget Cole being stabbed in the gut and then lifted up and then lifted up for a minute or two minutes and headbutting his way out of it. Hart gets an axe in his chest, like like he gets an axe handled deep to his chest, mm -hmm. and then it gets jerked out. Right, and and it's just I think he like, was flexing. That's what you did. If yeah. you go back and watch, you'll yeah. see. And I, I don't want to go into what it should have been too much because. I obviously have no experience with this, but I feel like it could have been handled if if you want to go if you want to go away from a cop procedural, you have Cole get stabbed, Marty shows up immediately afterwards, shoots the guy, the guy turns around and throws the axe or whatever, and then Cole shoots Errol, 
and the whole thing is over in less than 30 seconds. And you're left with sort of this feeling of like, wait a minute, what just happened? And I felt like that would have been a lot more effective. And I also, you're also not sort of playing on the emotions of Cole's obviously going to die. I don't want him to die. Which, I mean, that's what he's doing by having such a dramatic wound and fight sequence. You're, you're, you're wanting your audience to think these two guys are about to die. I mean, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Um, and those are all very, those are all things that Pizzolatto was critiquing throughout the rest of the series. He's now adhering to them in the last third of the entire series. It was just bizarre to me. Well, I guess I, I, I'll just wrap up by saying, again, this may be a weak defense, but I will defend the show based on its thematic consistency over its narrative weaknesses and plotting. And I feel like they didn't know what they had, Fukunaga and Pizzolatto, fully. And it shows in some of those most obvious, you know, hinting at the four, five horsemen, you know, all the things that that I imagine they thought they were being really subtle. And then when they actually start filming it, they're like, wow, that's really obvious. Yeah. I think we way overdid it yeah. with all of these references that truly aren't going anywhere. But to me, that does not impact. I can still, I think, back up and say what we got was a cop, buddy cop drama done differently with interesting ideas, with an interesting character arc, multiple arcs. I think both Hart and Cole have interest. They they end interesting in interesting places more than where they began. And so, uh, yeah, I did not like the Maggie stuff, you know, but I, again, I guess a weak defense it held up for me thematically, and I was fully satisfied. And I'm looking ahead to season two. Yeah. I think in a way that we're maybe... I feel like, do you... I feel like in talking to you, I feel like maybe you think that he's... Pizzolatto has spent his good stuff. Yeah, I think he he's threw done. his fastball. He's, done. he's yeah. done. I'm looking forward to season two, I think, a little more than you, hoping that Pizzolatto gets a set, it has a better sense of what he has and dials down some of the obvious motifs and trust that we will get it and becomes more subtle yeah i i think for me season one was very obviously a product of a guy who had been working on something for a long stretch of time and he had sort of poured everything into it and i was very encouraged to hear that he is still going to be the sole writer of season two it's obviously disappointing that not just uh, uh, not just is uh, Fukunaga not coming back, but they're going to be using multiple directors. Uh, I, I think those. I think that coupled with he's now writing with more or less a time frame and a lot of pressure and. It also seems like, you know, with all of the criticism about how he's treated women, all this, he's going to be writing with an agenda. He's going to be trying to silence critics or at least address critics. And that is something that is 
discouraging to me maybe or disparaging it's something that it makes me wary of the second season you're bringing me down yeah you're bringing me <laughs> so, down <laughs> so i mean i i will definitely watch it um and we'll see how it goes but i'm not expecting much from i'm i'm certainly not expecting what we got with the first season because like i said i feel like it's a guy who wrote this season and then had years to go back over it and be like i want him to say this i want you know, this is going to mean this, you know, to start plugging in all to make. I mean, basically everything Cole is saying is some sort of reference. And that takes time. You know, that takes a lot of time and a lot of dedication. And you just can't do that in six months. He also said that he started with the final line first. Did he really? Yeah. I never heard that. Right. <laughs> so he said he knew he was saying that and that's what started it. So the worst line of the show for you mm. was something that lasted the longest. Oh. Well, there you go. So there you go. Maybe I'm completely wrong. There you go. Well, uh, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and we will come back with our discussion on the Grand Budapest Hotel. Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel within the past week, week, no, two week, weeks. Two weeks. We didn't see it together, but we saw it. I think you saw it the day after I saw it, right? Yes. Um, at different theaters. Uh, important to note. Yeah. Very important. <laughs> as uh, you will realize, as we never reference that again throughout the rest of our exactly. Of the movie. <laughs> but uh, I-, I wanted to start off by talking about. The most polarizing aspect of any Wes Anderson film, which seems to be Wes Anderson. You know, a a lot of his detractors are just sick of him doing, quote unquote, the same thing over and over again, which I don't understand because he obviously sees things in a very specific way and he translates that into his movies. And I appreciate that, you know, when I approach any sort of media or consumable, I guess, you know, for me, movies are a very visual experience. So above everything, I want a movie or a television show or something that I'm watching to look great. And I don't think that you can argue that his films don't look great. But, there, you know, I, I've, I've, I've read some and I've listened to a lot of people talk about Wes Anderson, about the Grand Budapest Hotel. And a lot of the criticism that I, that I am seeing is about him framing everything symmetrically or you know long dolly shots or long tracking or whatever and just is that's not an issue for me i know that we fall on the same page on that so i just wanted to kind of get it out of the way get your thoughts on it and then we can move on to the actual movie right right i think we can both say the style's not an issue next subject because i'm tired of hearing people talk about Wes Anderson who want to take him to task on his style. 
Yeah. I, I don't know what you're expecting anymore. Yeah, just anymore. don't watch the movie. Just don't watch the movie. And so why even talk about it? I mean, yeah. you're not going to convince anybody who doesn't like Wes Anderson's style to like his style. And you're just going to waste your breath in praising his style if you love his style. So, right, I would much rather use this time to discuss the film itself and I guess maybe ask you a few questions and get and get your perspective on it. We we haven't talked about this, so this will be kind of the first time that we really go in depth about yeah. it. So, I mean, I don't know if you want to give an overview of it first, but my one of my first questions is, did this film strike you as a comedy? If somebody asked you, if this is this film a comedy, what would you say? It's... It's a. It, well, let me first start by saying I know we didn't preface this in True Detective, and we're not going to mention this very often because obviously we don't think about it. But when we discuss something, we're going to discuss every aspect uh, of it. Yeah, that spoilers. includes spoilers, everything. So if you're listening to this, you should have seen the Grand Budapest Hotel by now, or right. True Detective. It's a little late for that, but you know, um, you get it. Yeah. Uh, but the the movie that it's an interesting question because what I wanted to ask you about and it's the reason is I don't know how I feel about it and I haven't seen a really good explanation or take on it yet is I think what holds it back from being from saying this is a comedy or even this is a bad term but like a feel good movie um, is the uh Nazi, pervasive sorrow the, well yeah but the nazi metaphors the death squads there's just and it seems and it's and it's littered throughout the whole movie you know as much as we were talking about the style sort of not being is, an issue and people complain it's also leads to almost all of the visual gags in the movie which right. are hilarious right right but a lot of those visual gags are followed up by something horrendous for example the cat right Willem defoe's holding a cat throughout this scene and you don't he's just holding it's nothing's really made of it he's you don't kind know, of stroking it right. too he's yeah, kind he's of petting it. Yeah, you don't know whose cat it is you don't know why right. he's holding it and then, and then he gets upset and in a split second just tosses it out of a window and it's hilarious but then it's immediately followed up by this a view of the cat. A, a view a, a bird's eye view of the cat on the cement with its brain splattered out everywhere and it's gross and you're kind of like oh, okay that's a little bit of a bummer from this great joke you just told me right um, but yeah it, it, that you know like I said just the the Nazi comparisons or the Nazi sort of alluding to the Nazis in general is. I, I don't know what to make of it. And I was curious what your take on that is. Because right. there's a, you know, the faction in the movie is called the Zigzags. Right. And it's an obvious, I mean, is it a parody yes, yes. of the Nazis? Is it just sort of a, because the only thing I could really uh, make sense from it was maybe he was calling them inept. Because they, you know, have this huge shootout where everyone is shooting at each other for no reason right in the, the hotel, hotel. Um, and they they generally don't seem to be 
capable of doing what they're supposed to be doing but outside of that i just wasn't sure it's a it's a weird element to the to the film to me Mm -hmm. and i don't know what to make of it well and i think it you know the the reference is obvious It, it is the nazis uh the fictional kingdom is i think i've heard some people say poland Mm-hmm. Um, and Stefan Zweig, Zweig mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. Uh, Anderson all but uh, dedicates the film to, who kind of inspired it, uh, he was a novelist, lived through that and ended his own life by committing suicide alongside his wife. That, everything about that story, if you see where the influences are it all carries both of those uh elements of the little bit of stefan zweig that i've read he has a flavor of anderson to his writing Mm -hmm. it's it's really i mean i i haven't said enough to maybe give a, a proper uh description of his writing but it doesn't strike me as dour. Yeah. I wouldn't say it, it was dour. But in the same way that another big influence of uh, on Anderson, J.D. Salinger, a lot of his writing mixes the same, these same feelings of That's true. a perfect day for banana fish. Right. You're totally hooked. You're laughing. And then a guy's blowing his brains out. Right. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. And there's also elements of this guy might be a child molester exactly yeah i wasn't gonna there's, get there there's but, yeah <laughs> there's like a sort of there's uh, layers of yeah de- depravity right going on it, but i think that that's that's anderson i think that is i think anderson that's his way of kind of linking his stories to the real world i have a grand theory of anderson that says each of his films take place in a parallel universe that reflects our own but is not our own so the New York in Tenenbaums looks like our New York, but has none of the signifiers. He won't allow the Statue of Liberty to be in it. He obscures it with Gene Hackman, you know? Why does he do that? I think because he wants to give you the feeling of a place without giving you that identifiable place. Yeah. What he wants to do is he wants the emotions of the story and the character to connect you to his worlds, to his creations. In the case of Grand Budapest, I think he's trying to do the same thing on a much deeper level that's very dark that to me left me walking out and this may not be the most profound thought saying that wasn't a comedy. Yeah. For all the times that I laughed, that is not identifiable as Rushmore-esque of this is a comedy. And... I ended up appreciating the film so much more for that. And so I think by by holding both the comedy and showing us the real aftermath of including the death of uh, Jeff Goldblum's character, which was also shocking... Uh, and we well, I see think his, his fingers getting chopped off. Yeah. And we see a decapitated head in this as That's well. That's true. That's very true. <clears throat> I think those are the moments that he's trying to connect his story to the reality of the setting. So 
Yes, I do think that they are direct parallels to SS, World War II. I think he is... I think he does a good job of connecting his story to that. And I didn't get a sense of exploitation over that. Mm -hmm. I got a sense of deep understanding of it in this universe. Much like uh, Joseph Heller in Catch-22 captured a reality of World War II, which is largely what we see as the just war. Uh, And he tackled it as if he was tackling the Vietnam War. You know, he he managed to both have a anti-war novel set in the most justified war yeah possible yeah and uh and i think anderson is is a, is brilliant at being able to pull off the same feats that jd salinger uh joseph heller can do and i thought he did so with, with this but but it's by no means a comedy i think it's a sorrowful film about uh war and loss and storytelling which is the second question i wanted to ask you but i don't know if you want to say anything or respond to that i feel like i've just rambled a bit no no no. i i get i just don't like i said because i was i i felt unclear on the the nazi connection i don't i don't see it as I didn't walk away from the film seeing it as anything more than a, this story of the hotel, more or less. And that's I, that's a lot of times that's my take on anything I watch the first time. For me, it does take a second or third viewing before I start getting the deeper elements of something. Um, but yeah, I walked away thinking this was a really funny movie about... You know, Gustav and this hotel and Zero that had these weird zigzags, Nazi SS, elements that I right. didn't know what to make of. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess, I guess, you know, I don't feel like maybe I conveyed it well enough in what I was saying before, but for the sake of time, I would like to move on to, yeah. you know, the, the story structure of it, where you have the timelines that bleed both forwards and backwards from modern day back to 1932 then from 32 back to modern day at the end yeah and you even have this kind of strange introduction where you have the author of the book of the grand budapest hotel addressing us as an audience giving us tips for how stories aren't created but are kind of found objects yeah that i found kind of surprise it was jarring that he would do that. But I feel like this the, is... Him addressing storytelling was so jarring or him looking directly into the camera talking to you was And jarring. talking to us. Because yeah. he, was, he was addressing the audience. I kept waiting for it to be like, who's in this room? Yeah. You know, who is he looking at? Yeah. Is he being interviewed? And then you realize, no. Well, I think the idea is kind of that... I kind of... I guess I got the idea that he's videotaping himself, well, right? Yeah, he's either recording... He's recording himself yeah. in, in, in some way. But you have... You you have us as the camera, and it's never explicitly shown. And it's that never that's explicitly what he's doing. shown. Yeah. And then at the end, you even have that little boy coming up and like posing next to him, yeah, like looking right at us, right? Too, you know. <laughs> and I feel like this is storytelling one hundred and one with Professor Anderson. This is him explaining how storytelling works, and 
what I loved about the structure and why I think one reason he structured it like that is it allows you to see the impact of this story on everybody involved from the principal actors of, you know, the thirties to the author who's having it relayed to him by zero to the, um, author as he's older you know telling us about stories mm-hmm. so obviously his whole method of storytelling which changed by this this is his ultimate story this is what he's known for you know and it wasn't a story that he created it's a story that he was given right that he found yeah and then you have the modern day where you have this girl in a cemetery who is reading his book in this setting that we don't know about, but obviously has some impact on that culture at large. Did it make you think at all about storytelling in the way of what stories have impacted you, what authors impacted you in that way, and how these stories of ours, of our lives, can impact those around us, but also those that we can't see moving, you know, forward, you know, into the future beyond ourselves. Yeah, I think it's a, I think that is a very astute reading of it. And I agree. But with Grand Budapest Hotel, ultimately, like I said, I think those are all very good points you read, you Mm -hmm. you raised. I walked out of the movie Loving it. I love the movie. Absolutely loved it. Thinking I watched Willem Dafoe throw a cat out a window <laughs> right. and I saw his brains. But I walked out thinking, um, and I had this thought up until this conversation, the, the, the segments with the college student and the segments and the, and the segment with him introducing the story either through videotape or however he's doing it could have been cut out completely like i don't really get why they're there you know what i mean um i didn't i didn't look at it as this critique on storytelling maybe the more i look into that the more i'll see it in the movie um but overall i i love the movie because i thought it was despite those elements of sort of um I can't think of the word, but despite those, uh, those sort of the the Nazi elements and sort of the ran, more or less random grotesque shots, right? The movie is hilarious, right? And the reason you're questioning whether or not it is a comedy is because it it is hilarious when it's not, and even in some of those moments, you know, the moment with Jeff Goldblum getting his fingers sh- chopped off in a door is simultaneously gross and, and hilarious, hilarious because you don't expect that to happen. Right. Um, but outside of that, there are just so many, like, you know, there are so many funny moments and elements to the, to the movie. And it's not just, you know, visual gags that are funny. It's, you know, Gustav's character just describing him to somebody else. Right. He's a funny character. Right. You know, this guy who above all else is, proper and is worried about his appearance and he's constantly reading like two long romantic poems Poems. and 
um, and you, given to fits of swearing, right, right. But but then also given to fits of swearing, and then and and then you're given this scene that's not you know it's not a visual gag. I mean it, it it is a visual gag, but it's not slapstick where you've got Gustav who's just in, been in prison for how many number of months, months. or days or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's climbing out of like a sewer grate or whatever, and he's greeting Zero. And the first thing he says is, "Good evening." <laughs> just is like right, just is like this guy's just been crawling through sewage. You know, it's just as a funny and, and and a man gave his life to get yeah, them out. Exactly. I mean, and, we yeah, see and, a man thirty seconds early. You see a guy like shiving guys to death. <laughs> yeah, and and being killed himself. Yeah. Right. I so I mean I think you know for for me the film had the feeling of a book honestly it yeah. i feel like it was it was wes anderson's novel it it felt like that to me it made me reflect on stories that i've read that have changed my personal outlook and uh i feel like it's a very personal film uh it at least has the feeling of being personal i can't speak for anderson himself but to realize that Stefan Zweig had such an influence on this story in particular, I think makes sense. It, it feels like somebody who has come across, for you, Paul Oster, for me, probably J.D. Salinger. Uh, I think for both of us, probably both of those guys. I love Oster. I know you love Salinger, yeah. too. But, you know, those guys whose writing we would, you know want to read all of theirs and want and and have a connection like that girl in the graveyard did uh that i think i think carries with it a lot of power including the way that some of the main characters are dispensed with whether it's you know sarsha ronan's character dies right after they're married by a fictitious disease by the best i can tell yeah right it's this weird... along with their infant or right right the, maybe yeah, he wasn't even yeah. born she was still pregnant no infant infant yeah. yeah i mean you have this strange combination of it's a made-up disease yeah like why would anderson kill kill them by a made-up disease yeah. and i think it speaks to not only that kind of uh parallel universe idea where we don't have those, they do, and right. an author is suffering from what it remembers, like suffering by the intelligentsia. Like I was yeah. first brought as recuperating from, and it's a fictitious disease too. But yeah. for them, it's very real. So I feel like not only is it again one of those parallels, it's like the stop motion animation animals in Life Aquatic, where everything else feels like our world, except all their sea animals are stop motion, you know, made out of clay. In this one, it's the diseases, but I think it also works to kind of undergird his overall theme about stories, how they can carry weight with them that this made-up disease took Zero's wife and child, and here he is left with the aftermath of it, and all he has is this story of his to share. You know, the last thing that I'll say... And the more time that goes on, the more I reflect on F. Murray Abraham as being the silent kind of star of the film. I think Ralph Fiennes is amazing. And in a lot of ways, he is the main character. But again, to reference No Country for Old Men, 
you know, is No Country for Old Men more about Llewellyn or Tommy Lee Jones's character? Yeah. I think in the end we realize it's about Tommy Lee Jones the whole time. Llewellyn was a piece of Tommy Lee Jones's story. In the same way, I think Grand Budapest pulls that kind of number where at the end I'm left reflecting on F. Murray Abraham and how he's been impacted by this story more than Gustav. Gustav is a player in Zero's yeah. story. So, and specifically F. Murray Abraham. I don't know how you felt about that. If you came away feeling F. Murray Abraham was maybe more of the subject than even Gustav. For me, the the movie the movie moves at such a pace that it doesn't allow for the for that reflection that I need. Right. right? So So let's go see it right now. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of that will come with a second viewing or with you know discussions like this. And I, I to jump back to the diseases and the zigzags real quick, I think a, a possibly a good explanation for that could just be that opening the doors to the Grand Budapest Hotel and seeing real Nazi mem you know memorabilia is not the uh, <laughs> insignias everywhere right. would be too too, much. too overwhelming too much. it'd be too much you'd be hitting your point you'd be hitting your nail on the head too much right right um it's a godry yeah and and allowing this fake faction to to take its place i think allows the viewer to stay with the movie while also having this sense of dread of like these are very bad people and the, the same thing can be applied to the diseases you know right. making it a fictitious disease it it leaves it so all you have to know is that was a disease they that died. killed his wife and son or baby um whereas if you're saying you know this consumption they died of consumption or they died of the plague all of a sudden you're thinking wow yeah the plague was terrible and Thanks, you're, Anderson. You're, yeah you're out you're you're bummed out right and you're still bummed out but you're 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 still experiencing that within the framework of the movie you're not taken out of it right um and so that's that's more or less the the conclusion I came to on those things after seeing the movie. Um, what was the what was the what was the question? Uh, the the question was about F. Murray Abraham. Oh but, right, right. But yeah, I think you kind of answered it when you said you kind of need to see it again. Yeah, Maybe. yeah. The more I reflect, uh, he just stands out to me in some ways more than Gustav. I found that interesting how my brain kind of latched on to him yeah so yeah go see grand budapest <laughs> hotel <laughs> it's a little difficult to say um so with that we're gonna take another break and we will come back with uh whatever's trending twitter on twitter trends yeah so hopefully something is happening or else that segment's gonna stink <laughs> <laughs>
All right, so now we are on to our next segment uh, where we look at what is trending on Twitter and uh, search for what is interesting. Try to make some sense of it. Right. So uh, I'm just going to read through what I see is trending on Twitter right right now and, and throw it to Justin to see if he can make sense of it. Yeah. And if we can find anything that's uh, interesting. All right. So with that being said, the first thing I see here is hashtag scandal. Neither of us watch scandal. So nope. just keep looking. All right. There is a hashtag TBT. Justin, do you know what TBT yeah, is? TBT is Throwback Thursday. What is Throwback Thursday? I actually do not know what that is. Oh, really? You don't? I don't. Uh, it's where everyone... Oh man, I was just thinking about this today too because I, I, my, I, my personal Facebook has turned into more or less throwback Thursday. My social media like stomping ground, or I take out right. all my frustrations on social media, right. right? Um, so I've kind of got it in my head that I just created this Facebook back in January, mm-hmm. and over the the course of this Facebook profile's life. I'm only going to have three photos, right? Right. Two of those photos are illustrations of my oh, original profile picture. I've seen them, yes. <laughs> and I'm just, throughout the course of this profile's life, I'm just going to keep referencing those three photos, those three right? Photos. Right. So today, I did a hashtag TBT, throwback Thursday, okay. to Your. my original profile pic. <laughs> <laughs> which I don't and that's the thing I don't get much feedback on this you know I don't know if people are looking at it like this guy's because I also said throwback I had said hashtag oh, I, I should have pulled it up earlier right. but I said something I said something like hashtag TBT to my first profile pic when I was only 31 years old right <laughs> which I is how that. old I am now right. <laughs> right right so I don't know if people are seeing that and thinking like this guy is just an ass and he's making fun of all of us which i'm not like blatantly i'm not trying to be mean i just i find that funny right right um and i don't know if like i'm sure people get the joke but whatever so 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 tbt is every thursdays is every thursday and look there's also tomorrow you'll see hashtag fbf flashback friday it's the same thing and people just post old pictures of themselves it's just like who cares like this is this is the thing for me. This might be mean. Right. I don't I really could care less about what old pictures of you look like. Right. Like why do I care about that? You know what I mean? Like I can understand the significance of it every now and then. But if you're posting 10 5 10 15 year old pictures of yourself every Thursday and maybe that's just why, you know, I'm not made for social media, but that just doesn't make any sense to me, right? right. And that, but that's all it is. It's just as like it's just an ex- is an excuse to post yet another picture of yourself, right? Just like you know, selfie Sunday or Sunday selfies or whatever. Or... Well, I'm kind of looking through some of these, and I think you're right. It's it's like an excuse for people to post baby pictures of themselves. Yeah, you know, Which, and, who cares? Right? It's kind of like. Uh, look how cute I was as a kid or look how I look in this oversized football uniform from this person. I won't read, read, read their name. Okay. 
Yeah, but it's just it's like, who cares? TVT. Like, why do I care what you look like as a baby? And that's coming from somebody who my Instagram is used largely for pictures of my kids, like my right. babies. But, you know, so, you know. Hey, you're not posting pictures of you right. as a baby. Right. Which I guess there's a difference in that. But at the same time, it's they're similar. You know, I, you know, I'll, I'll accept the, the, what's the word? Hippo, hippo, hypocriticalness of it. Right. That's a tough one. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Uh, all right, moving on. This next one I think is is uh, pretty interesting. So I think this okay. this is good. Uh, National Cleavage Day, mm-hmm. apparently. Hashtag National Cleavage Day, though. Who is the genius who ruled this day? So somebody, I guess, is just wondering how, how that started. So uh, do you know what started National Cleavage Day? I, no, I have no idea. Is this a grassroots effort? It, to- it might be a, like a, a grassroots Twitter effort. It's it's you know, but it's like every every day is a national day okay. now, right? I uh, don't click on that. I'm. <laughs> no, I'm not. I don't know what I was expecting, but that first tweet was not. And then lastly, or I, or I think you know, the last two that I see here are. Uh, BBCQT, which I guess I wanted to know if you no, wanted to. I, 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 ima- I would imagine it has something to do with somebody being cute. Right. Uh, the first tweet that I see here, it says, you can't redefine marriage. Yeah, you can. It's easy. Only look, only took me two minutes. Hashtag BBCQT. So it has to do something with marriage equality. Right. And somebody said, there's no such thing as the tradition of marriage, only traditions. And if there is a single thread... It's that custom changes, BBCQT. So I don't know. Do you want to take a stab at what those letters mean? It has I something have to do with no marriage. No idea. Yeah. Okay. So I guess this is us exposing ourselves as being out of the uh, political loophole on this. The Twitter political loophole. I guess we should qualify that as. Yeah. And the final Twitter trend of this evening is TMNT. Yeah. Because the new trailer for the new... Right. Did you watch the new Gritty? You did. did. Mm -hmm. Oh, what'd you think? It looks... (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I'm in my 30s. Yeah, but I mean, we grew up on Secret of the yeah, News. I watched in the theater. Absolutely, I I love absolutely loved okay. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I love the movies. I love the cartoons. I watched the cartoons on VHS over and over. That was my right. childhood. I had the action figures. I had the um, turtle van, whatever that stupid thing was called. But I had it. I put my turtles in it. I I loved it. But I'm. Th- I'm almost 32 years old. Right. I'm not old by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm in my 30s. I have kids of my own. Like, I've I, I, them. I watched it out of morbid curiosity, and then you see everyone losing their stuff over the TMNT, and it's just like, well, I mean, obviously they're not all my age, but I was just kind of like, I, who cares? <laughs> like, the, the thing that was most upsetting to me more than anything was not how they looked. It was that 
this is a, a trailer. For, I don't know what the rating is. I don't know what their angle is. I don't know who they're aiming it towards. Hard R. And toward, it, well, totally. <laughs> in, in terms of demographic. But the trailer itself opens up with the guy shooting an, an automatic rifle into the air. And it just is like... Those aren't the turtles of my youth. Right. Like, like that would have never been in one of the turtle movies in the 80s. I wonder, are we going to see Leonardo actually use those swords? (laughs) Is he going to cut some people's guts are going to spill out? Like, I mean, this is a Michael Bay produced movie. I can't remember who it's directed by. Oh, directed by the guy that that made the Battle of LA or the Battle of Los Angeles, which I didn't see. I couldn't stand it. I guess... Oh, sorry. Go no, on. go go ahead. I guess I was going to say in wrapping this up, I know I'm springing this on you, but could you give me a counter tweet that you would like to see trending right now? Instead of, I guess maybe we could take out National Cleavage Day? Yeah. Or TMT, TMNT, maybe. But could you give me a something else that we could replace that gap? Because that gap would have to be replaced with something. Yeah, I don't know what the hashtag itself would be, but there, I follow a guy on Twitter who makes a lot of really good BuzzFeed jokes. I was just about, about how BuzzFeed? terrible BuzzFeed is. Okay. Right? And and so I would like to see that trending. Hashtag terrible BuzzFeed? Yeah, just something. Because, you know, they've got all this... Like, BuzzFeed is... They're pretty terrible. Right. I mean, you know, they're harmless, whatever. But they're just a... a, a they're just like a garbage website. Right. You know what I mean? Butt feed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's perfect. Butt feed. That is perfect. Um, but actually, I had a, I had, I did have something. I have two here because I'm looking at the trends myself. Uh-huh. And the, the top uh, trending on my, uh, I use a different app, I think. Oh, okay. The, the, t- the top one trending on mine is hashtag cancel Colbert. That's not on yours? No. So, I did not see that at all. Yeah. So this is the most favorited one. I'll, I'll read it to you. Well, apparently, Colbert, the Colbert Report, Colbert uh, Report tweeted. Yeah, I, well, I don't watch the show. Yeah, tweeted something uh, offensive, right? So to before, who? To the world. It's Twitter, man. It's everything's public. They're ready. Yeah, <laughs> they're gonna get pissed off about. Okay. Yeah. So um, I'm gonna read you his tweet. Okay. And now people are calling for his like. To his cancel show, his show. Cancel. Like, and this is, you know, people love Colbert. I'm expecting this, this is to be crazy. terrible. Yeah. All right. Now, don't laugh while I'm reading this because... This is, yeah, threatening to get him canceled. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Colbert Report. Sorry. Colbert Report. This was one hour ago. Or no, I'm sorry. This was at six o'clock. I'm willing to show hashtag Asian community I care by introducing... The Ching Chong Ding Dong Foundation for for sensitivity to Orientals or whatever. You know what? I actually didn't find it hard not to laugh at that. Yeah. Also, I I would find it equally. I I would find it very hard to try and be offended by. Right. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) obviously, neither of us are Asian, but. It's, first of all, it's not that funny because it just is like, that's the joke every single, you know, redneck white guy makes about Asians. Or that's the, that's the joke that everyone makes when they're trying to be purposefully racial 
or racist yeah. about Asians, right? Which the words which, ching chung, are right? In there. Which on this, which on another level is also the purpose of the joke. I mean, that's Colbert's character, right? Right. right. Like he's that's his he's he's playing quote unquote the a very hard leaning right conservative, yeah. right? That's the whole point. Right. So I don't understand why people would be getting upset <sighs> about that. Because there's right? nothing else. It's just something well, you, else for you them saw, to get national, upset about. It's National Cleavage Day. So. <laughs> it's a slow. It's, it's a, a slow, slow day on Twitter. TBT. Okay. And I had one more real quick. This is one that I found throughout earlier in the week. Mm-hmm. And there's been a string of celebrities recently. Gwyneth do- Paltrow. Sure. Yeah. Doing uh, like um, doing Q&As on Twitter. Oh, okay. Right? Never so mind. Of last that. week or a few weeks ago, Jenny McCarthy did one, huh. you know, hashtag ask Jenny or whatever it was. About vaccine. Well, no, it wasn't about vaccinations, oh, okay. but everyone jumped on it and was yeah. like, you're crazy for right. being anti vaccine So this week, apparently, the uh, Pittsburgh, oh shoot, where is it at? The Pittsburgh Penguins player... His name is Neil. That's all I know okay. because the hashtag is Ask Neil. And I think I we watch, all know Neil from the watch, Pittsburgh Penguins. I don't watch hockey. Um, so this Neil guy in the Penguins did an Ask Neil hashtag. And so a bunch of people starting and started. Apparently, who are like, you? Yeah, apparently he's like a goon. Okay. Like, um, you know, like. Gets uh, on the ice and just rusts people. Yeah, like Sean William Scott from the movie Goon. Goon. Right. Yeah. So people get on there and they say. Uh, one of them is, how do you take your martini? Shaken, stirred, or need? <laughs> so you'll start to see a hashtag ask Neil. You'll start to see a trend here. Hashtag ask Neil. Any good workout tips? I'd like to strengthen my knee joints. Does kneeing someone in the head help strengthen them? <laughs> so there's just a string of tweets, and everyone is asking him about, like, kneeing people. <laughs> so apparently Neil is a guy on the Pittsburgh Penguin penguins who knees people yeah which is you know that's not the first move i think of for a goon on yeah, that's ice very, hockey that's true that's it seems like it'd be a hard sport to knee somebody in the yeah. head yeah you're not exactly given a lot of mobility with all the pads and everything that's how neil made it though that's he true. found a way that's true i guess that's somewhat impressive <laughs> yeah so maybe that hashtag will stand as a testament to his like abilities yeah his his dedicated hey you go out on the ice and try and knee somebody (laughs) in the head yeah it's not easy yeah everyone's giving me crap for this but it's really difficult (laughs) i don't think they understand that and they get really hurt i mean i do my job (laughs) yeah okay well that's uh what was trending on twitter (laughs) um if you liked the show Find us on Facebook at facebook.com. Everything's interesting. You can like us there. Follow our posts. If you didn't like the show, feel free to go on there and, you know. We're big boys. A, yeah, give us a, a piece we of your, take give it. us your two cents. I can take it. I'll, I'll write something back. Uh, may not like it. Yeah. <laughs> it may not make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you'd like to follow us individually, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Blizzard. That is with nine Z's. <laughs> Good luck. 
And uh, Keith is also on Twitter. Keith, what is your uh, handle on Twitter? At things come right. Okay, and that's just like it sounds. Just like it sounds. Spelled out, no spaces. Things come, come right. right. And that is right as in the direction. That's right. And uh, before we sign off, I'm just going to quickly uh, plug. Oh, actually, we do have one recommendation for me, right? I was oh, that's say, right. Recommendations. Right. I was going yeah. to say, also, as a random recommendation, listen to the score of Under the Skin, even if you have not seen the film. Okay. I Amazing. That's it. We'll probably not do that. Just. Why not? Just being honest. <laughs> Why not? I mean. You can stream it. Yeah. Oh, I can? Pitch I might. Okay. Okay. I might do that. Okay. I might do that. So my recommendation to you is uh, Mac DeMarco, one of my faves. Yeah. As the Facebook generation likes to say, of recent um, has a new album coming out on the 1st, next Tuesday. Salad Days. Salad Days. It's streaming on NPR. It's a great album. Uh, he, Pitchfork, speaking of which, Pitchfork did a quote-unquote cover story for their website on Mac DeMarco. And my recommendation is for you to read that cover story. It's, okay. it's really interesting. And I'd like to know, you know, we have sort of an ongoing rapport about Mac DeMarco because his music is so good and he's so weird. It's not yeah, it's not the mo- it's not the deepest music, but it is certainly thoughtful. But he is such a weirdo, right? And he just seems kind of like he just is a little weird. That's all. Right. He seems like a really nice guy, but he also seems a little weird. Um and this interview with Pitchfork, a cover story with Pitch- Pitchfork is interesting. So I'd like to know what you think about it. So that's my okay. recommendation. Okay. Um so when we come back in probably two weeks, maybe mm-hmm. a week, mm-hmm. depending on what happens, mm-hmm. we'll discuss that further. And uh, until then, like we said earlier, you can check out our page on Facebook at facebook.com. Everything's interesting. And uh, follow you us can on Twitter. follow us on Twitter. So Why not? Thanks for listening. <laughs>